Well, good morning, brothers and sisters of Community Bible Church. It's a joy to have you with us this morning. I'd ask that you turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus 3 to begin our morning. If you're in the foyer and you'd like a seat in the front row, there's uh, several seats in here and maybe a few uh, scattered throughout, so don't be shy to come on in and join us. You're in Exodus 3. Yes, we are celebrating Jesus' birth at Community Bible Church, as you just uh, heard from our kids, and what a, what a blessing that is. Thanks for joining us. If you're visiting with us to see the kids, uh, it's all downhill from here, so that was, that was definitely the highlight of the morning. Yes, I am preaching uh, from the Gospel of John today. Don't be uh, troubled in your heart that we're turning to Exodus. There's a very important message in that. We've been enjoying an exposition of John's Gospel as, uh, since September of this year. Right now we're in John 1.14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us uh, in the providence of God. He's brought us right here, right on time, John 1.14. Last week I told you that uh, these words in John 1.14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, these words are birthday party words. Happy birthday Jesus, we should say, when we see this text. The Apostle John has hit the high note in the song of his prologue by saying Jesus is God, and God became a man. He took on flesh. And he lived here on earth with us. John 1.14 is an incarnation celebration in as much as it is also a paradox. It is an enigma, a quandary, a mystery, a conundrum for our minds. Jesus' incarnation begs the question, how can God become a man? How does that happen? I labor to explain this to you that for us who are believers, this is no burden to understand at all. The Creator simply stepped into His creation. Our infinite God chose to wear finite flesh as if it were just a garment that he wrapped around himself. Jesus, the immortal, put on mortality without changing one aspect of his divinity. This is a grand and glorious thought which John captures perfectly in four words. Praise the Lord for this prologue announcement in John 1.14. D.A. Carson says John is unambiguous, almost shocking in the expression he uses the Word became flesh. Ralph Martin says, to the human mind there is something almost illogical in the assertion that God became a man. It is like speaking about a square circle, and yet this is what Christmas says, according to Ralph Martin. John Calvin would have you know, Christ voluntarily took upon himself everything that is inseparable from human nature. Jesus' humble incarnation makes us sing how marvelous, how wonderful, and my song shall ever be. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. Jesus didn't come for vacation, did he? He didn't come to hit all the tourist hot spots across the globe. He didn't come like Santa Claus to take up residence at the North Pole with a group of little people never to be seen by anyone. That's not what Jesus did at all. The exact opposite of Jesus is true. He took on flesh and he chose to dwell among us. William Hendrickson says... In the midst of this ungrateful world, Jesus manifested his supreme love. From the infinite sweep of eternal delight in the very presence of his Father, the Word was willing to descend into this realm of misery to pitch his tent, as it were, for a while among sinful men. We marvel at the glory of Jesus' incarnation. From the humility that it presents to the relatability that he communicates, we are so blessed that Jesus chose to wear flesh to be just like us and live among us so that in his death he would pay the cost of all the sins that we will commit in our lives on earth. And yet I had to ask you this question last week. Was Jesus' birth to Mary the first time that he engaged personally with humanity? 
Was Jesus seen face-to-face the first time by Joseph and Mary in Matthew 1.25 at his birth? We ended our time last week by looking at two theophanies in the Old Testament. Theophanies are divine, in-person appearances of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. The theophanies in the Old Testament demand recognition of the pre-incarnate Son of God temporarily engaged in dialogue, instruction, prophecy, and blessing with people on earth. James Borland says theophanies are those unsought, intermittent, and temporary, visible and audible manifestations of God the Son in human form by which God communicated something to certain conscious human beings on earth prior to his birth as Jesus Christ. You are in Exodus 3, where Moses encounters Jesus Christ in a burning bush. Moses was in Midian, shepherding a flock for Jethro, his father-in-law. When he came to Mount Horeb, the mountain of God. We read in Exodus 3.2, And the angel of Yahweh, which is better understood, the messenger of Yahweh, appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of the bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. And so Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight. Why is the bush not burning up? And Yahweh saw that he turned aside to look, so God called to him from the midst of the bush, and said, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. He said also, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Then Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Most depictions of this event in Scripture only show you a bush and a fire, However, Henry Morris would have you know, the text clearly says that the angel of the Lord was visible to Moses. This is why Moses hid his face, so that he would not be looking on God. And so I ask you the question, friends, as I did last week, who is the man standing in the bush, seemingly on fire? Who called out, Moses, Moses? In Numbers, chapter 22, you don't need to turn there, There's a false prophet named Balaam who's riding a donkey. When the donkey sees a man with his sword drawn standing in the middle of the road, which Balaam does not see, the donkey yields on the road to the stranger with the sword, as anyone would. Balaam can't see it. He beats his donkey until the donkey finally speaks to Balaam and rebukes his rider. After Balaam was rebuked by his donkey, Numbers 22.31 says, Yahweh opened the eyes of Balaam at that time, and allowed him to see the man on the road with the sword drawn. Seeing the man, Balaam falls to the ground, prostrate, and bows his head. Brothers and sisters, who is the man? Who is the man with the sword who can reveal or hide his appearance as he wishes? Clearly, in these texts, we are looking at the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. Jesus had no problem interfering with the lives of men and women before he was born into this world. Theophanies, friends, are great. But far greater is happy birthday Jesus, John 1.14. Jesus' incarnation was a 33-year purposeful and intentional stay on earth in human flesh, which shows us his great love for his Father and the great love of the Father and the Son for us. Because Jesus did take on flesh and dwelt among us to suffer for our sins in our place. Turn now in your Bibles to John chapter 1. Why start our morning in Exodus and Numbers, looking at theophanies. Why must I keep asking you the question, who is the man in the Old Testament? The answer to this is to establish the fact that Jesus is God. 
Jesus wasn't created at his birth, friends. Jesus has always existed. Jesus is co-equal, co-existent, and co-eternal with the Father and the Holy Spirit. This is the point of the prologue of John's gospel, to powerfully declare Jesus is God. Before we read the prologue again, I want you to see that it's no problem for Jesus in his pre-incarnate nature before taking on flesh, being birthed by Mary, to engage in relationships with his creatures. That's not a problem for me at all. He's the creator of all things. He comes and goes in his creation as he pleases. He allows men to see him or not see him. That's his choice, by the way. He causes donkeys to talk or not talk. Jesus is in control of everything. That's the point that you must hold on to if you are to understand John's gospel account of Jesus' life, death, crucifixion, and resurrection. Jesus is God. You know, if you want to have a successful life on this earth, come to this point right here. Get a grasp on these first 18 verses. Live your life like Jesus is God, like he's in control of every detail that's happening in your life, even all the details that brought you into this place today, right now. Know that he is God. He did that. He's causing those things to happen in your life. It's no coincidence that you're here. The whole point of John's gospel is to cause you to believe then that Jesus is God and believing to have life eternally in his name. You're in John 1.1, where John introduces Jesus as the Logos, the Word of God, the Creator, and the life and light of men. Just past the middle of the prologue, John says, Happy birthday, Jesus. Happy birthday. In verse 14, Jesus' incarnation and the heavenly blessings that result from Jesus' birthday will be the focus of our time this morning. Specifically, he chose to dwell among us. We see these birthday blessings in John 1, verses 14 through 18, so pay close attention to those in our text today as we read John's prologue together now. John says in John 1, 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not overtake it. There was a man having been sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. There was the true light which, coming into the world, enlightens everyone. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to what was his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but they were born of the will of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, saying, this is he of whom I said, he who comes after me has been ahead of me, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, Jesus has explained him. In his pre-incarnate theophanies, Jesus was explaining the Father, friends, for hundreds of years. 
But Jesus' virgin birth in Bethlehem and his perfect 33-year life explained the Father much more personally, profoundly, powerfully, and perfectly. D.A. Carson says, God chose to make himself known finally and ultimately in a real historic man. When the Word became flesh, God became man. John 1.14 is a birthday party for Jesus. It's an incarnation celebration. It is here in the prologue that John offers six incarnation celebration realities that make us marvel at Jesus' humility and glory. In the text, John presents six heavenly blessings of Jesus' birthday which reveal the grace and the glory of God. What six heavenly blessings of Jesus' birthday make us marvel at his humility, grace, and glory? Well, I haven't given you the list. Only pieces at a time because we're treating this like a Christmas gift. Unwrapping one package at a time, verse by verse, word by word, as it were. Last week, you did see the first of six heavenly blessings of Jesus' birthday. Number one in your notes was Jesus' humble incarnation. When John says in verse 14, and the word became flesh, we see number one in your notes, the first of six heavenly blessings, Jesus' humble incarnation. His humble incarnation consumed all of our time last week until I introduced point two in your notes. The second of six heavenly blessings of Jesus' birthday is then number two in your notes. After his humble incarnation, number two, Jesus' relational habitation. Jesus' relational habitation. Our whole morning will be consumed with Jesus' relational habitation. This is where we'll spend our time today. Where do we see Jesus' relational habitation? His personal home? His intimate abode? We see Jesus' relational habitation in the words, and dwelt among us, and dwelt among us. I find these to be some of the most comforting words in the Bible. And dwelt among us. Jesus was not ashamed or disgraced to be found wearing flesh and dwelling with men. I can't help but think of the distance between God and us, between the Creator and the creatures. We're so sinful, and yet Jesus overcame the distance caused by the wretched state of our rank sinfulness and took up residence with humanity nonetheless. We don't do this for each other. This is not how we live our lives. We don't choose to go and dwell among the least of the people in our society. There's not one of you that I can believe in this room. Come and tell me, please, if you spent the night last night at the House of Charities in downtown Spokane. He did this for us. He did this for us. Knowing our sinfulness, there is a part of this happy birthday comment that before it is comforting, friends, I find it repulsive. It's awkward. It begs the question, what kind of disgusting birthday celebration is this? Which of you would host your child's birthday at the House of Charities? Or take your child to Los Angeles, not for Disneyland, but for Skid Row? None of you. No one would do this. Why dwell among us, Jesus? Why take on flesh and dwell near us, in proximity to us, in communion with us? Why did you need to come in contact with us? We are so unworthy of your company, presence, influence, and love. We are entirely unworthy. And yet you did this. Brothers and sisters, are you entirely comfortable with the God of the universe dwelling among us? There's a, there's a part of me that is not. 
comfortable with that. Shouldn't he be excused from such service to humanity? Aren't we just that disgusting in our sinfulness? Doesn't that make these words dwelt among us unfathomable? Friends, the glorious answer to that question is Jesus' grace is greater than all of our sins. In the immutable mind of Jesus Christ our Lord, there is extreme intentionality, eternal purpose, and infinite glory in taking on flesh to redeem the elect, predestined, foreknown children of God. Dwelling among us in flesh for Jesus is essential for achieving his greatest glory. This begs the question, what is the purpose of dwelling in close proximity with us? Does physical presence communicate relational intimacy? If you're confused about that, ask your spouse, kids, family, or friends. You know the answer is absolutely. Is there power in experiencing someone's physical presence which makes dwelling meaningful? Certainly there is. Absolutely. Dwelling communicates union, unity, solidarity. Dwelling delineates and distinguishes your family and friends from everyone else in the world. What does Jesus dwelling with us provide personally for us? What are the implications of Jesus dwelling among us? What must Jesus' relational habitation with us, what must it communicate to us? Turn in your Bibles to Revelation 21, verse 3. Jesus dwelling among us, friends, is the topic of our morning. It is on my mind. This morning I want to explore two implications of Jesus dwelling among us. Two implications of Jesus' relational habitation. Two implications of Jesus dwelling among us. The first implication of Jesus dwelling among us to consider this morning is identity. Identity. The first implication of Jesus dwelling among us that we need to consider is identity. I want you to see then the first of two implications of Jesus dwelling among us. Number one would be our identity in Jesus dwelling among us. I want you to see identity. This is so critical. I think about young women, 13 to 19 years of age. What do I want to communicate to you? Identity. What does the Bible say about who you are? If it's important for that group of people, 13 to 19-year-old young women, it's important for every one of us to know who we are in Christ, specifically as a result of him dwelling among us. We need to explore this. I want to, I want to ask the question of you, how does identity come from dwelling among us? To answer this question, we need to consider the verb dwell from our text in John 1.14. The Greek verb dwelt, dwell, is the verb skeno, which means to live, to dwell, to spread a tent. Skeno is a verb that shows up only five times in the New Testament, all five by John in the verb form. The other four uses are all in Revelation. Skeno has a noun form as well, which occurs 21 times in the New Testament. The noun form of skeno, it means tent, dwelling, shelter, tabernacle. That's an important word. It's a word skeno is that screams of the Lord's Old Testament dwellings and dealings with Israel. Stephen Cole says, John could have said, the word lived among us, but instead he uses the unusual word translated dwelt, which means to pitch a tent or to tabernacle. It is used of the tabernacle in the Old Testament where God dwelt with his people in the wilderness. Jesus tabernacled among us. You'll be blessed by the beautiful thoughts surrounding John's last use 
of this tabernacling word, skeno, both the verb and the noun for dwelling and tabernacle in Revelation 21, verse 3, when John says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle, the skene of God is among men, and he will dwell, skeno, among them. He will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things passed away. Brothers and sisters, I hope you will find this very interesting and peculiar on John's part. Skeno, dwelling, appears in chapter 1 of John's gospel in the prologue at the moment that he is celebrating Jesus' birthday. And then here, at the end of Revelation, again, John speaks of skeno, God dwelling among men in his skene, the tabernacle of the Lord, with his people, which declares our identity. We are the people that dwell with God. He is the one who chooses to dwell among us. He dwells among us not only in his incarnation, he dwells among us in the power of the Spirit now. And we will be dwelling among him and with him in his tabernacle in heaven forever. This is powerful to understanding your identity. There is no coincidence here in John's text, by the way. John is being very purposeful with his words in his gospel and in his revelation especially as it relates to Jesus' identity as God and our relationship to Jesus as the children of God. Turn in your Bibles to Exodus 29. Exodus 29. John is intentionally tying together the presence of God in the tabernacle in the Old Testament and Jesus taking on flesh to tabernacle among men there in the New Testament in John's prologue in chapter 1. Jesus' identity is of supreme importance to us because our identity, friends, is uniquely tied to and built up in Jesus' identity. Only in knowing Jesus do you know something about yourself. You know, that, that should really set the course for the whole rest of your life. If you're not in church, you're a fool because the church is where you're taught about Jesus and teaching about Jesus teaches you about who you are. If you don't know Jesus because you're not in the church, you don't know who you are. Does that make sense about what's happening in our world with identity? I would hope so. Andreas Kostenberger says that John's use of skeno or dwelling in John 1.14 at the birthday text suggests that in Jesus, God has come to take up residence among his people once again in a way more intimate way than when he dwelt with Israel in the midst of the wilderness in the tabernacle. Moses met with God and heard his word in the tent of meeting. Now people may meet God and hear him in the flesh of Jesus. At Exodus 19, I'm giving you a run-on to our text in Exodus 29. At Exodus 19, Moses and all of Israel arrive at Mount Sinai. They're going to be there all the way through 29 and more. Okay? At 19, Exodus 19, they arrive at Sinai, and this is where the Lord would give instructions to Moses about how he wanted to relate to his chosen nation Israel. At chapter 25, verse 8, Yahweh says to Moses, And let them, the people, make a sanctuary for me, a tabernacle for me, that I may, skeno, dwell among them. Yahweh labors in telling Moses all the details required for the presence of God to dwell among the nation of Israel, to give them identity with him 
you need to perform. There are requirements. We need to see an Ark of the Covenant. We need to see a table of showbread. We need a golden lampstand. There are specific materials required for curtains in the tabernacle. The bronze altar, even the priest's garments were very meticulously designed by God. At chapter 29, Yahweh is specifically discussing the food for the priests which they are to eat, which will come from sacrifices made on the altar. Yahweh will make his presence known to Israel, but only when specific criteria are met and sacrifices are performed. And we would all join Israel and ask the question, why all the details? Leviticus, details. Exodus, details. Numbers, details. Why the details? Why all the specificity? What's the point of the specificity? The point, friends, of all the specificity in Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, the point is identity. That's the point. The details in these books of the Bible that you gloss over all too many times in your life, the details of them are derived from the identity of God. God is holy, and the details scream about the holiness of our God. James Boyce says everything about the tabernacle, its dimensions, furnishings, color, functions, and arrangement was designed to communicate spiritual truth, specifically that God is holy. He is a holy God. He is distinct. He is set apart. He is entirely unique and otherworldly. If Israel is going to know God, first they must know that he is a holy God. The holiness of God is seen in the many details. If Israel is to know God, they must attend meticulously to the details that God has laid out for the design of the tabernacle. Further still, if Israel is obedient, then God in all of his glory will dwell among his people and they will be given the right to be called children of God. That's an incredible bargain. Go look at the details in Leviticus and understand that men set out to meet all of the details in Leviticus so that they could be found obedient children of God. But this is God's desire, even as we read in the New Testament, to have a people who desire to be in his holy presence on his terms, not theirs. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 says, But you, friends, are a chosen family, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may be the ones proclaiming the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The desire of Yahweh is to give identity to his chosen people by dwelling with them and showering his blessings upon them, which the Lord says plainly, as recorded by Moses in Exodus 29, Verses 45 and 46, where you are now. Verses 45 and 46, where these words are recorded. The Lord, through Moses, says, verse 45, I will dwell among the sons of Israel and will be their God. They shall know that I am Yahweh their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am Yahweh their God. Friends, is Yahweh in this text making a request to be their God or is he making a declaration? The difference between the two is considerable in your understanding of identity. Friends, this is a declaration of great importance made by the God of the universe because this declaration is loaded with extreme relational and identifying language. The threefold repetition of their God is given for assurance and certainty in identity on Yahweh's terms. 
that he has chosen to be the God of certain peoples. He goes further by twice stating his desire not only to have these people and to have them for his own possession, but to dwell with them, among them, to have personal relationships with them. The Hebrew word for dwell here is the word shakan, shakan. Shakan means to settle down, tabernacle, reside, abode, or dwell. This is the word shakan. Shakan is the Hebrew word from which Jewish rabbis coined the extra-biblical expression Shekinah glory, which describes the physical manifestation of God's presence in Israel. Turn your Bibles to Exodus 40. Exodus 40, we'll look at verse 34. I said Shekan, and I just introduced that Shekan is the word that goes with the idea of Shekinah glory, a term that pops up in Christian circles often. Many of us think of Shekinah glory of God as the clouds by day and fire by night in Exodus 13, or the Shekinah glory of God resting on the top of Mount Sinai in fire in Exodus 19.18, and then a cloud in Exodus 24.16. Or we think about 1 Kings 8.10, where Solomon's temple is filled with a cloud which forced the priests out who were delivering the Ark of the Covenant to the temple that Solomon built. In 1 Kings 8.11, we read, For the glory of Yahweh filled the house of Yahweh. And we consider that the Shekinah glory of God. Most of us have been taught to think that Yahweh's Shekinah glory physically manifests itself in the form of fire glory or cloud glory or smoke glory. When all of this time, friends, all of this time, Shekinah literally means dwelling. Brothers and sisters, the Shekinah glory of God is the dwelling glory of God. The dwelling glory. Relational Habitation, glory. Proximity to people, glory. The purpose of Yahweh's Shekinah glory is to announce his presence, which gives his people identity, relational identity with God, the God of the universe. This is the Shekinah glory of God. Projecting his name and his faithfulness in relational, identifying ways for his people to know who he is, and who they are. You're in Exodus 40, verse 3, where Shekhan, Shekinah, Shekhan, is used five times in five verses to announce that Yahweh is pleased to dwell among obedient men, leading and guiding them as their personal relational God. Moses records in Exodus 40, verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of Yahweh filled the tabernacle. And Moses was a not able to enter the tent, of the, the tent of meeting because the cloud had dwelt on it, and the glory of Yahweh filled the tabernacle. Now, throughout all of their journey, wherever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the sons of Israel would set out. But if a cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out until the day when it was taken up. For throughout all their journeys, the cloud of Yahweh was on the tabernacle by day, and there was fire in it by night in the sight of all of the house of Israel. Turn in your Bibles to John 15. John chapter 15. Brothers and sisters, dwelling creates identity. Dwelling gives identity. Dwelling screams personal, relational intimacy and unity with the God of the universe. Dwelling communicates care, comfort, concern by God for us. Dwelling presents the occasion for genuine fellowship and friendship with God, the end of hostility, even the beginning of a familial relationship with Him. 
How does becoming family with God change your identity? This is the positive impact of God dwelling among men, is that His choice of us and dwelling among us creates for us identity. This is the positive side. Consider the impact of dwelling from its absence, will you, as well? The negative side of dwelling when dwelling doesn't happen. Think about dwelling in its absence. At the time of the Declaration of Independence in 1776, America was a nation that embraced slavery. Though founded on biblical principles, our identity as a nation was compromised, friends, compromised, because we failed at the biblical principles of dwelling and identity. Slave owners' dwellings were big colonial countryside mansions, while their slaves' dwellings were barns. This came from the unbiblical mindset that one man can be identified as the property of another man. Consider the size of our identity hypocrisy, which was broadcast the world over in our Declaration of Independence, which states plainly, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. All men are created equal? God makes that very plain in his word, does he not? Unfortunately, Thomas Jefferson and several other men worshiped a God of their own understanding. While they affirmed that all men are created equal, they believed that some men are more equal than others. Slavery in America would not be abolished until this day, December 18, 1865, 157 years ago at the signing of the 13th Amendment to the Constitution of the United States, 89 years after the founding of our nation with this inconsistency. Slavery is the perfect opposite to dwelling together. We don't have any way to calculate the cost of American slavery, but we do know the death toll of the American Civil War, which was fought to end slavery and allow all Americans to dwell among one another in liberty and freedom. Our slavery and dwelling together failure, it cost America 620,000 lives in a period of four years. Not to mention our failure to dwell together in unity has forever disfigured our American identity. But you know what? Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, in the body of Christ, we have a unity that far exceeds the unity provided in our American identity. We have a unity perfectly void of racism and partiality. The Bible calls us all children of God, children of light, the adopted sons and daughters of our Father in heaven, among many other personal, eternal, relational nicknames which explain our identity in Jesus Christ. We need these nicknames for the purpose of inclusion and identity, which gives us confidence and assurance that we are the children of God, among whom he is pleased to dwell. You see, brothers and sisters, Yahweh dwelling with Israel and Jesus dwelling among humanity for 2,000 years, these are dwelling precursors for the ultimate dwelling of God on earth. Precursors. Precursors. What am I going to say to you next? I just said to you that Yahweh dwelling with Israel in the tabernacle and Jesus dwelling among humanity 2,000 years ago, that these are dwelling precursors for the ultimate dwelling of God on earth, which wouldn't happen until 40 days after Jesus' resurrection when the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost in Acts 2, and God lives in you. For purposes of our identity, the ultimate dwelling of God on earth happens 
when the Holy Spirit permanently takes up dwelling, indwelling, in the wicked, sinful hearts of believers in Jesus Christ. He removes a heart of stone, he replaces the heart of stone with a heart of flesh, and he lives in there, causing you to watch, walk in God's statutes and keep his commandments. There's no fire, there's no clouds, there's no smoke, just the pursuit of righteousness from a once spiritually dead sinner like you and me. You're in John 14. Did I say 15 earlier? I meant 14. So just go to 14, verse 16. John 14, 16, where Jesus is explaining identity and dwelling to his disciples on the night of glory at the Last Supper in the upper room. After Jesus tells these men the Father dwells in him, in verse 11, when he says, Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, right after this, Jesus goes on explaining to them that the Father's future dwelling plan for them includes the person of the Holy Spirit. Not too many days from now in the future, Jesus says in John 14, 16, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate, another helper, that he may be with you forever. The Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. You know him because he abides with you and will be in you. Brothers and sisters, this is the pinnacle of relational intimacy and relational habitation. When the God of the universe lives inside your heart. Amazing. This is the plan. It doesn't happen except that Jesus comes in flesh to earth to dwell among us. Turn back in your Bibles to John 1.14. I want you to think about this for a moment. In the Garden of Eden, Jesus' relational intimacy with Adam and Eve was perfect, was it not? But they sinned and ended their relational intimacy with Christ. Then Jesus chose intimacy with Abraham and his descendants, but they sinned and ended relational intimacy with Christ. And so Jesus had a birthday 2,000 years ago and chose to wear flesh and live among us to create relational intimacy all over again on better terms, conditions, and promises, which include the promise to his disciples in John 14, 16 on the night of glory, the promise of God dwelling permanently inside the hearts of sinful men. What an awesome promise. What a glorious gift of grace that Jesus Christ, who is God, can extend to sinners like us. You might ask, at what cost can Jesus make such a promise to these men? At what cost can he give this gift to these men? Now, within 12 hours of making his indwelling promise of the Holy Spirit to his disciples, do you realize that within 12 hours, Jesus was nailed to the cross? And it was on the cross that Jesus suffered the wrath of God against all of our sins. On this basis alone, Jesus suffering the penalty from God for all of our sins, for all those who believe in him, Jesus has been given the right to spiritually rebirth all of the Father's elect by sending his Holy Spirit to dwell inside of them, to dwell inside of us, to dwell inside of me. Is this personal to you? It's personal to me. It needs to be personal to you. John says in John 1.12, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. 
even to those who believe in his name, who were not born of blood or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. Friends, I am born of God spiritually. Many of you, my brothers and sisters who are members here, you are born again spiritually. Friend, you are a child of God. I am a child of God. You are a child of God. Do you know that? That's your identity. I didn't give it to you. He did. I'm just reading his words. You need to hear this. You need to know this, that he made this action happen to you. You know, Jesus' salvation doesn't work like Santa Claus. He's not making a list and checking it twice, going to find out who's naughty or nice. That's not Jesus' salvation. Now, I want you to think about something because Santa Claus is an interesting character. Stay with me for a second. He's making a list, checking it twice, going to find out who's naughty or nice. Do you realize that's syncretism? Do you realize that's synergism? It's synergism. Every other religion in the world projects synergism just like Santa Claus. They're all Santa Claus religions. Only Christianity knows the God of the Bible who's not making a list or checking it twice. Heaven forbid none of us would ever match up to that. You don't want that. You want a salvation that is dropped onto your head as a gift of grace because if it comes to you that way, it can come to your drunk uncle that way. It can come to your desperate grandmother that way. It can come to your lost 14-year-old that way. You want that Jesus. You don't want Santa Claus salvation like the world wants. You want the salvation that comes right out of the text of Scripture. Brothers and sisters, the first implication of dwelling then, the first implication is identity. Identity. We are born again, spiritually rebirthed, children of God, because Jesus came to dwell among us and send his Holy Spirit into our hearts, which has changed us at the very core of our beings, at the point of our nature. Which brings us to the second implication of Jesus indwelling among us, his dwelling among us, I should say, the indwelling. First, we saw that identity comes from dwelling among us. Second, we need to see that influence comes from dwelling. Influence. I gave you identity, I now give you influence. The second implication of Jesus dwelling among us is Jesus' influence. There is no greater influence than indwelling by the person of the Holy Spirit. But before indwelling of the Holy Spirit, Jesus dwelt among us, issuing out his influence for 33 years. I want you to see in the text the influence of Jesus dwelling among us. I want you to consider it. It's an implication of he dwelt among us. So you see there in the text of John 1.14 when the Apostle John says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And I'm saying to you in the words, and dwelt among us, number one, think identity. Number two, think influence. These two things, dwelt among us, identity and influence. Let's talk now about influence. The Word of God, the Son of God, the Creator of God, the Creator of all, sorry, the Creator of all things. He didn't ask, friends. He didn't ask permission to come to earth and dwell among us. He's the Creator of all things. God did not ask permission to come among us. Jesus didn't ask. He knew what was right and what was righteous, and he did it. Rather, quite boldly, Jesus knew what was best, and he decided to give us identity with him and blessing, and the, the very blessing of his influence from his person for 33 years in this life. How did Jesus influence the world, friends? 
He was, for 33 years, the continual display of righteousness. He was, in and of himself, the picture of perfection, the picture of grace and truth and humility. Jesus was the one displaying miracles and signs. He was the life giver, raising people from the dead. He was the hope giver, the one who fulfilled all prophecies. Was Jesus' influence, was it chosen or was it given? In a word, how would you characterize Jesus' influence the whole course of his 33-year ministry? The word that comes to my mind is righteousness. He was a righteous influence on this earth. What do you think about influence? There's a whole new category of people in our world because of social media called influencers. What are they doing? Is influence something that should be chosen by you or given to you? Where do your influences come from? Your choice or the choice of another? What about the influence of your children? Do you know who is influencing your children? Are you in control of those people who are influencing your children? Many of you have your children checked into our children's ministry right now. Do you know what we want your children in our children's ministry to have happen to them this morning? Do you know what we want for them? Influence. They're over there with our teachers for influence, the purpose of influence. We want you influenced here in the sanctuary by the preaching of the Word of God. And we want your children influenced by our very intentional, caring and loving children's ministry teachers who are right now sharing Jesus Christ with your children. Turn your Bibles to Matthew 5. Matthew 5. We understand the power of influence, and we know, friends, what all men everywhere need. I'm unashamed to say that to you. I know what all men everywhere need. Acts 17.30. All men everywhere are called by God to repent. Everyone needs to be confronted with the fact that we're all sinners and that Jesus is the only Savior. As a church, we not only desire to influence your life and the lives of your children, further still, we desire to influence Mead, Washington, and Spokane, Washington, our state, our country, even our world, with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're not going to ask permission, by the way. Please note that we, we didn't conduct a survey of Spokane County in 2020 and ask the residents of Mead and Spokane, Washington, hey guys, do you all approve of our influence in your neighborhood as we bring in another Bible church? We didn't do that. Nor did we wait for an invitation from the city council to start Community Bible Church two and a half years ago. We've been so bold with our identity and influence in Mead that we didn't ask one resident if they would be okay if we were here, if we bought this building, if we preached Jesus Christ in this neighborhood, if the people that walk in here, their friends and their family hear about Calvinism, about soteriology, about theology, about theophanies, if we talk about God and his works and his word and his power, his plan, his sovereignty. We didn't ask anybody. We just came in here and did it. To the contrary, friends, the Lord burdened our hearts with the conviction that we needed to be here in this building influencing Mead and Spokane for the glory of Jesus Christ that more men and women might come to the knowledge of the word made flesh and believe in him for eternal life. Our influence in this community was not requested, and perhaps largely by the local residents, it might have even been mostly undesirable, but we came anyway. Does that make us rude? Does that make us arrogant, presumptuous? Does that make us Bible-thumping aggressors? Does that make us ruthless Christian colonizers? 
Is it right, friends, to influence sinners on this earth with the message of Jesus Christ? Shall you only ever influence somebody with Jesus Christ when they ask you to influence them with Jesus Christ? Or does righteousness always demand the continual influence of Jesus Christ on earth at all times? You're in Matthew 5.13, where Jesus offers the following comments that help to clarify just how much influence believers in his name must be in this sin-sick world. Jesus says in Matthew 5.13, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has become tasteless, how will it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but they put it on a lampstand and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. To this sin-sick world, friends, we are the salt and we are the light. We cannot be silent with the perfect message that God became a man and dwelt among us and is now calling all men everywhere to repent, Acts 17.30. I would hope that you would agree. God wants us influencing our world in the righteousness of Christ all the time, regardless of whether they want it or not, because we know the world most certainly doesn't want Jesus' righteous influence. And yet this is exactly what the world needs and was created for. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew 28. Matthew 28. Our situation is no different than the plight in life of William Bradford, 402 years ago, who on this day, December 18th, 1620, arrived in Plymouth, Massachusetts aboard the English ship the Mayflower. William Bradford, friends, was a Calvinist, independent English separatist who was soon to be the governor of Plymouth. He was forced to flee the influence of King James I in England, who had vowed to make separatists conform to the Church of England or harry them out of the land, he said. William Bradford's whole church fled to Holland and they were there for 12 years, during which time they concluded that the Lord Jesus Christ was leading them to the New World, to the American continent, for two reasons. Number one, religious freedom. And number two, evangelism of the Native Americans. Brothers and sisters, was it right for William Bradford to travel to America for the purpose of evangelizing the natives? Shouldn't he have stayed in England where he was from? What gave him the right to presume that he could steal land from the Native Americans for his religious freedom purposes. How arrogant was William Bradford to believe that the natives would welcome him and his message. They loved worshiping their own false deities. Leave them alone. Let them be at peace as they go to hell. Wasn't William Bradford simply the leader of an English colonizing force terrorizing the Native American population under the banner of Jesus Christ? Isn't that all he was? I was discouraged a few weeks back at Thanksgiving when I happened upon a local television station interviewing some local Spokane Native Americans who wanted to, quote, share the truth and horror in the real meaning of Thanksgiving. Their comments I choose as a Native American to best summarize as sensationalized revisionist history propaganda and lies. William Bradford and the English Calvinist nonconformists came to America 
with the best of motives, even the essential motive of advancing the Christian faith, of sharing Jesus Christ. William Bradford came in love to preach Jesus Christ, and in his prayers, he requested that God do a work of salvation on the hearts of the natives that no amount of propaganda could accomplish. William Bradford's presence on this continent in 1620 was the grace of God to the people on this continent. It was the grace of God himself, first to the Native Americans and also to the pilgrim settlers themselves, but further, as we can look back now over the course of the last 402 years of human history, William Bradford's resolve to pursue religious freedom in America was a blessing to the whole world. No other country in the history of the world has done more for the spreading of the gospel of Jesus Christ than America. America produced the greatest season of influence for Jesus Christ and evangelism that the world has ever known, friends. All because William Bradford was obedient to the Lord's command through Paul in Colossians 3.17 when Paul says, And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Bradford was obedient to Jesus Christ who said in John 14.15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Bradford kept the greatest commandment that Jesus authored in John 13, 34, and 35 when Jesus said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And William Bradford honored the words of Jesus Christ, the ones that are found in Matthew 28, 18 and following, where you are, where Jesus said, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to keep all that I commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. William Bradford knew the significance of Christ dwelling among us, and Bradford was obedient to the calling Jesus placed on his life when Jesus saved him, Bradford left comfort and security to secure Jesus, to, to share Jesus Christ with the natives in Massachusetts, a blessing that those Native Americans did not deserve or earn, but a blessing sent to them by God nonetheless. He was peaceful, Bradford was, and loving, kind, and respectful to the Native Americans. As we know, he made a peace agreement with the Wampanoag tribe and friends with Samoset, Squanto, and Chief Massasoit. He blessed them by choosing to use his life to dwell among them. Turn back in your Bibles to John 1.14. Dustin Benji, as historian, says, The pilgrims found nothing but friendship with Massasoit and the Wampanoag tribe. For years, says Benji, for years it was not uncommon to find several Indians living in Plymouth. Squanto himself became a constant companion of William Bradford. While history records the joyful details of their first Thanksgiving celebration, in truth, they often feasted together, says Benji. Hospitality, sharing meals, this is the path of influence, investment, kindness, love, and grace. And it was something that William Bradford practiced. Dwelling is powerful, friends. Dwelling is purposeful. The implications of dwelling include identity and influence. While William Bradford was a considerable influence on the American continent, Jesus was the most powerful influence in flesh that this world has ever known. 
by dwelling among us, Jesus proved the end of hostility between God and man. We have no reason to fear the wrath of God because Jesus said that he came to die for the sins of his people. John records in John 10, 11, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Isn't that comforting to know? You will never earn your salvation. If you are a sheep, he died in your place. You could never pay God for one sin. He's paid them all. He is the good shepherd. From Jesus' life, we understand our identity then as his sheep and the importance of submission and sacrifice in this life for the greater glory which belongs to God alone, which brings us to point number three in our notes, the third of six heavenly blessings of Jesus' birthday. After looking at Jesus' humble incarnation, number one, and Jesus' relational habitation, number two, we finally, at this thought of glory, we arrive at point number three in our notes, the third of six heavenly blessings of Jesus' birthday. Number three, Jesus' glorious revelation. Jesus' glorious revelation. Did the world get the message? Was Jesus' humility and sacrifice observed, or was it ignored? You're in John 1.14 where John says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Praise the Lord, friends. Jesus' message was beheld, looked upon, observed. We didn't waste the glory of Jesus' humility, service, sacrifice, or suffering when he came to die for us on the cross. The Father in heaven made sure that the eyes of many beheld the glory of the Son, which is his very same glory. They share glory together. So next week, on Christmas Day, it will be best if we spend our time beholding the glory of Jesus together for a whole hour as we consider the glory of Jesus' birth on his birthday. We'll do that next Sunday. For now, I'd like to conclude our time with application on this whole thought of Jesus dwelling among us. We spent our morning considering Jesus' birthday and the heavenly blessings that flow from the gift of his incarnation. Specifically, Jesus dwelt among us. We need to ask ourselves, how does Jesus dwelling among us matter to me? How should I respond to the identity in Christ that Jesus has supplied to me in his grace? What influences should I allow into my life to help me know, love, and serve Jesus all the more? Who am I called to dwell among and share Jesus Christ with even if I don't or even if they don't want the gospel? And how must I become an influence in the lives of others that more might resolve or receive Jesus' grace and know for themselves that Jesus has given them the right to become children of God? Well, first, my comments would be directed at those who don't know Jesus here. The call on the life of every person in this room is to repent and believe the gospel. And so I ask you, friend, have you repented? Do you know Jesus Christ as Lord? Are you born again? Has Jesus saved you? You must repent. The unrepentant all have an identity. Your identity is that you are sons of Satan. You must be born again and given new spiritual life that you might be children of God. And so first, every human being must repent. That's identity and influence on the class scale of 101. That's the basics. Second, I would want you to know that dwelling matters most in Jesus' church. Jesus Christ is building a church and the gates of hell will prevail against it. If you are not a member in a church, friend, can I just tell you, you're wrong. You're wrong. You don't know Jesus' plan for great salvation that he gave you if you're not on his team in a local church. 
all Christians must answer the text of Hebrews 13, 17, which says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are the ones keeping watch over your souls as those who give an account, so that they will do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. Every genuine, blood-bought, born-again, spirit-filled believer in Jesus Christ must find their identity in his church, his local body, the local expression of his body, the local church. And so who are your leaders, friends? To whom do you submit? Does your wife know that? Do your kids know that? Do your grandkids know that? The church is a place of influence on our lives. Are you submissive to the influence of your local, biblically qualified church elders and your fellow obedient brothers and sisters in Christ? Or are you a rebellious Lone Ranger Christian? Be careful, friend, if that's you. As, as, a, as a friend to you today, as a blessing to you, as a friend to you, I need to warn you, Jesus, if that's the way that you live your Christian life, Jesus has warrant to say to you at the appointed time, depart from me, I never knew you. Third, I would ask, who are you influencing with the gospel of Jesus Christ? Who are you dwelling among and giving your time and energy and attention and resources to? How often and for what purpose? Are you influencing them to behold the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ? Or are they influencing you toward the ways of this world? Children of God must be found using the resources they've been given to influence the world to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. You can do this by practicing hospitality. Have your fellow believers over to your house for a meal to give them encouragement and be encouraged in the faith. Be hospitable with your unsaved neighbors. Use your home, your dwelling place, your table and your food to give grace and the gospel. Hospitality is a great way to share your identity in Christ and influence others for Christ. And finally, be hospitable to Jesus Christ in your heart continually. Prepare him room. Prepare him room. This is not a one-time activity. For those who have been graced with salvation, our desire is to be conformed to the image of Christ from one degree of glory to another day by day. 2 Corinthians 3.18. Brothers and, brothers and sisters, I say this to you. May the word of Christ and the person of Christ dwell richly within you, that you may produce deeds of righteousness for the glory of God this week and all the days of your life as your simple habitation would be allowed here on earth, dwelling among us, even us at Community Bible Church. Let us pray. And it is our delight and joy to know the salvation that you've given to us. The salvation that you have placed onto us as a free gift, we didn't earn it. We didn't deserve it. We didn't even think on it until you gave it to us. And it causes us to marvel, to praise, to honor, to worship you. Moreover, as we've seen today, Father, in the text, you're dwelling among us. It gives us identity and it causes this incredible influence that steers us more and more away from the cares of this world and more and more to our glorious Savior, Jesus Christ, who took on flesh. This whole season needs to be about him. And so, Father, as we close in song, let us sing the praise of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, together. In his name, amen.